Neil deGrasse Tyson, and delusional space enthusiasts. You're listening to Are We There Yet? The radio show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. Astrophysicist, author, and science communicator Neil deGrasse Tyson says space enthusiasts are delusional. Exploration is aspirational, and the reality of geopolitics, economy, and culture are huge challenges keeping us planted firmly on the ground. It's the topic of his talk called Space Enthusiasts Are Delusional, one he's giving here in Orlando Wednesday night at the Dr. Phillips Center for the Performing Arts. Ahead of his event, he joins us here on the show to talk about the harsh reality of space exploration and the hope and optimism he gets from a new generation of STEM explorers. Balancing ambition with reality as we reach for the stars, that's ahead on Are We There Yet? here on WMFE, America's Space Station. From missions to the moon to humans on Mars, the space exploration agenda is ambitious. And many times it's plagued by delays, cost overruns, and even cancellations. It's a harsh reality of space exploration. And astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson says we all need a reality check. I spoke with him ahead of an event he's having here Wednesday night in Orlando at the Dr. Phillips Center for the Performing Arts, where he plans to bring us back down to Earth when it comes to our space exploration ambitions. Uh, so your talk's titled Delusions of Space Enthusiasts, uh, and it presents a mismatch between where people think we should be when it comes to space exploration and the realities of geopolitics, the economy, and culture um, that hinder that development. Let, let's first talk about where you think we should be in, in 2021. In the grand scheme of space exploration, what should we be doing right now? Well, I never tell people what we should or shouldn't be doing. What I do is I alert people of the consequences of uh, certain behavior, phenomenon, investments uh, that go on in the world. And, uh, and it relates to geopolitics. It relates to um, uh, incentives. It relates to innovation. Mm-hmm. And so I, I never tell people what we should be doing. It's just not my role here. What I can tell you is when people say, uh, we're going to be on Mars in five years. I can say that is highly unlikely for the following reasons. Um, by the way, people said that. I mean, I'm old enough to remember when we're going to the moon. And people said, oh, at this rate, we'll be on Mars by 1985. No. <laughs> All right. And that's not just with hindsight. We could have known that at the time. But the, this, the delusional state is so strong because the ambitions are so high um, that people... People lose sight of the actual causes and effects of great achievements such as that. Mm-hmm. Can you you can say delusional or aspirational, right? I mean, is there some sort of positive effect that can come from us saying that well, we'll be on Mars in, in five years? Or, or really, do you have to be grounded in the reality of, of what's happening outside of these ambitious ideas? Well, that's an excellent point. And I, I'd say they go together. Mm-hmm. I would say... Um, great ambition comes along with great delusion. <laughs> so, uh, so, so the way you, the way this would play out is you you say, all right, I want to live on 
the moons of Saturn, right? Or something. Mm-hmm. Get something really sort of hairy, audacious goal. And in your attempt to achieve that, you innovate in mm-hmm. ways that uh, point in that direction. And those innovations have remarkable other applications in our lives. And so I will never stop someone from having great dreams mm-hmm. in this way. And I will, uh, I, what I will do is I will, um, what I will do is I will, I will say, okay, that, that's great, but just keep this in mind or just keep that in mind. And, but they'll keep going. So for example, I'm not going to stop Elon from trying to have a colony on Mars, mm-hmm. even though I think that's highly unlikely. Mm-hmm. And I'll be giving reasons for why that's highly unlikely in during the talk. Um, and, and let's let's look at how we remember our own journeys in space. If you ask most people what was going on when we went to the moon, they say, well, we're explorers and we're discoverers and we're Americans and that's why we did it. And you just forget that we were at war, mm-hmm. but not only, a, you know, a hot war in Southeast Asia, but a cold war. And we got beat by the Russians. They had the first satellite in orbit. They had the first non-human animal in orbit they had the first human in orbit they had the first woman in orbit they had the first space station. they beat us in practically every metric mm-hmm. of space exploration that mattered at the time and we said all right we're going to leapfrog all of this because we were spooked by this and then we went to the moon and then we said we win okay <laughs> and so okay um but we were reacting to those challenges we were not, so we were being reactive rather than proactive, mm-hmm. but hardly any of our memories place it that way. Mm-hmm. But that's exactly what was going on, and that's one of the delusions. Mm-hmm. And because if since you think we went to the moon because we're explorers, then you can see why people would say, "Oh, went to the moon by 1969. Not much longer we'll be on Mars," because you think that's just the natural next step mm-hmm. of an explorer. Mm-hmm. But it's not the natural next step if we went to the moon because we're at war. And we go to the moon and we find out, okay, Russia is not going to the moon, so we're done. Mm -hmm. That's why it ended. Mm -hmm. All right. We went to the moon from 1969 to 1972. Mm -hmm. That's that's a three-year span. Mm -hmm. The beginning and end of it all, when it was clear that it was no longer on the Russia's docket to do Mm -hmm. so. And, and, And no further advances in space travel occurred in terms of how far you would ever journey from Earth. And they still haven't. We haven't left low Earth orbit since 1972. Mm-hmm. So let's be honest with ourselves about what's actually happening. Mm-hmm. So this whole talk is a, is a reality check on people's ambitions versus what actually happens. Mm-hmm. So, so do we need that adversary to propel exploration? Do we need another Soviet Union for us to actually make it back to the moon and to Mars again? Or, or do you think that there could be some other motivations for exploration? So some years ago, I wrote a chapter for an encyclopedia, the Columbia History of the 20th Century. And it, in writing that chapter, I stumbled on a revelation that was, for me, so insightful about human nature and civilizations and societies. Because I, I wanted to know, if we're going to go to Mars with people, of course, we, we have rovers there, so that, but that's not what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. If we're going to go to Mars with people, that's going to be very expensive. So I asked, how expensive would that be? And then I said, in the history of humans and civilizations doing really expensive things, 
what motivated them. So I, I, I make a whole table of things people did that were expensive and the motivations behind it. And then I say, all right, let me match up the cost of going to Mars with these great things civilization has done and then duplicate the motivating forces. And then we would go to Mars. I, so I, had, I was ready to make a whole grid mm-hmm. of causes and effects. And all I could find were three drivers, three drivers that prompted people to spend scads of money to do great things. One of them was the promise of economic return. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's kind of obvious. We got that one. Okay, what's another one? Another one is the praise of royalty or deity, mm-hmm. which is has less force operating in modern times. But in the day, you did it for kings and gods. Mm-hmm. That's what you did. All right. And the third reason is because you don't want to die. <laughs> A military driver. All right. Mm-hmm. These I found no other causes. so the urge to want to do it Mm -hmm. with political will was insufficient Mm -hmm. it didn't show up anywhere so let's you and i could we might quibble where in a list of 10 certain items would appear but we'd agree what would be in the top 10 most expensive things people have ever did for example the great wall of china Mm -hmm. um the, the the apollo project the manhattan project all right um the uh the building of the great pyramids hugely expensive in in human capital and financial capital all of them are the the pyramids they're tombstones for kings right the 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 manhattan project war the apollo project as i've described to you it's war um what else do we have here the the columbus voyages were hugely expensive Mm -hmm. but that the there was an economic and hegemonistic driver for that Mm -hmm. all right we want a shorter route to the far east and oh by the way uh, Chris, you know, Queen Isabella didn't say, oh, bring back, you know, take pictures and give us a slideshow when you return. That's <laughs> not what she asked of them. It was, here are flags of Spain. Mm-hmm. Plant them wherever you go and claim the land in the name of Spain. Mm-hmm. So this is sort of power and economics folded into one. And so, yeah, Columbus himself might have been an explorer, but the people who write the checks for this, that's a whole other motivation. Mm-hmm. And that's And that's something that it's easy for us to either forget or not invest the energy to learn because it's so much better for our ego to say we're humans and we're explorers and it's in our very nature to do so. Still to come, my conversation with Neil deGrasse Tyson, astrophysicist with the American Museum of Natural History in New York, author and host of the podcast Star Talk. We're talking about the reality of space exploration and the challenges to get us to the stars. Just ahead, Neil's hope for the future and how the next generation of STEM explorers can make these ambitions a reality. That's ahead when Are We There Yet continues here on WMFE, America's Space Station. You're listening to Are We There Yet? here on WMFE, America's Space Station. I'm Brendan Byrne. If you're just joining us, we're talking with Neil deGrasse Tyson. He's an astrophysicist with the American Museum of Natural History in New York. He's also an author and host of the podcast Star Talk. 
we're talking about the reality of space exploration and the delusions of space enthusiasts. It's the subject of his upcoming talk Wednesday here in Orlando at the Dr. Phillips Center for the Performing Arts. Our conversation continues. Okay, so after hearing this reality check, I mean, is there an optimistic future that exploration may happen just for sheer exploration and not for one of those three reasons? Because I, I do not see... You know, us trying to impress a king these days. I don't see very much economic <laughs> return on going to Mars. And Mars really isn't going to yeah, save our species. I don't think there's diamond mines on Mars yeah. or oil wells, right? <laughs> so, so, I mean, this is the kind of a buzzkill, Neil. I mean, with, okay, with what you're saying. Right, so let me, let me pull you out. Sorry to put you in the here. Let me pull, see if I can pull you out, okay? So, here's – and I thought hard. I, I said I can't end this research on a down note. Is there an upside? So mm-hmm. here's here's the best I can do for you. All right. <laughs> so so um, space has a remarkable power of ambition and inspiration on the educational pipeline. Mm-hmm. For example, let's say you like geology, and I say, do you realize the largest volcano in the solar system is on Mars? Mm-hmm. Whoa. Okay. So now I take you from who is an earth geologist and I've got you thinking about space. Um, and then you say, well, wait a minute, that volcano is, is dormant. Maybe it's extinct mm-hmm. on Mars. All right. You know, the most active volcano in the solar system is on a moon of Jupiter. Mm-hmm. Io. Okay. You say, whoa. Okay. So, and, uh, and you want to look for life in the bottom of the ocean, exotic life or new species. Why not look for life in the past history of Mars? Mars once had running water, right? So, so flowing water on its surface. So whatever Earth challenge you can hand a kid, mm-hmm. when you put it in space, it takes on a whole other dimension of adventure. Now watch. In order to do that, you need to be scientifically literate. Mm-hmm. You need to embrace the STEM field. So watch what happens. If the government said, we want to have a colony on Mars, and decided to do it, an entire generation of students will be excited by it and want to become STEM professionals. Mm -hmm. If you pump society with generations of new STEM professionals, you are guaranteeing the economic um, uh, strength of your future economy. Mm -hmm. Because all growth economies that I've been able to uh, discern that rise up do so because of innovations in science and technology. So, so it's a matter of, it's a, it's a numbers game at that point. Look what happens. We're in Florida, a storm comes through and there, everyone escapes, right? Run, buy toilet paper, buy water, <laughs> you know, and what would a, what would a STEM professional do? They would say, I wonder if I can invent a device that can tap the energy from that circulating hurricane use that energy to power the needs of the city and drain the energy out of the hurricane at the same time, thereby rendering it uh, uh, powerless. Mm-hmm. That's the kind of thinking that a STEM professional would do that transforms civilization. Mm-hmm. And, and if, if you don't have people like that walking among you, then we, we will spend the rest of our lives running away from natural disasters. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll spend the rest of our lives um, praying that someone will recover from cancer rather than handing them a pill that cures it, right? Um, what, I, I grew up in the second half of the 20th century where the United States had such priorities. We had such 
such incentives to get people into STEM fields. And so, so what, so, so getting back to your question, I think a strong economic driver is not that we'll sell trips to Mars, but that the entire country will be pumped with science literacy mm-hmm. and that manifest in every possible way that we function in society. Mm-hmm. And that, so then it would be an economic investment in the future um, uh, financial health of the country. Mm-hmm. So I'm a because little more... of the spillage from that from those ambitions. Yeah, I'm a little more optimistic now. Thank you for that. <laughs> <laughs> because no, no one wants to do it for war. Yeah, I, but okay, you want to go there? All right. So if China leaks a memo, doesn't have to be true. If they just leaked a memo saying they want to put military bases on Mars. We'll be on Mars in 10 months, okay? <laughs> <laughs> I have no doubt. Yeah. No doubt. Okay? So the difference here is you have people like Elon and others who want to have colonies on Mars. They, their incentive is because they want to do it. And maybe you can staple together some multi-billionaires and they'll do it. But then it's kind of a vanity project. It's not a business model, mm-hmm. right? So, so – my issue is if you're a business and you want to put a colony on Mars, no one is going to invest in that mm-hmm. because the ret- there is no return on the investment. Nations do expensive things first. Mm-hmm. And then they figure out what, what was that first cost? What are the risks? What are the rewards? What, and then private enterprise comes later. Mm-hmm. That's how you went from Columbus to the Dutch East India Trading Company. Mm-hmm. Dutch East India Trading Company were not the first Europeans to the New World. They were not going to do that. No. They don't know how far away land is. They don't know where the trade winds are. They don't know where the hostels and the friendlies are. They don't have any of that information. Mm-hmm. Hegemonistic, long-term goals of a nation for power, for war, drive that. Mm-hmm. Then private enterprise comes in later and then makes a buck. Mm-hmm. Elon's making a buck now. Because he's doing things that NASA has been doing for 60 years. Mm-hmm. Takes cargo to the space station. Huge headlines. New era in private enterprise. No, he's taking cargo to its space station. That's what the shuttle used to do. Mm-hmm. Right? Now he can do it for less. Mm-hmm. That's the new era. He's doing it for less money. But he's not leading our place in space. Mm-hmm. And don't get me started on the billionaire boys club. That's a whole other thing. <laughs> That's going to be a third of my talk. <laughs> Well, you know, Neil, you brought up quite a few things that, you know, I've been seeing here, you know, covering space and and here in Florida. We saw SpaceX, um, you know, launch astronauts just days after landing astronauts. They're now done, you know, five human missions in two years uh, for a private company. We also have the James Webb Space Telescope set to launch into space, uh, possibly the end of this year, giving us a deeper understanding of the universe um, and scientists continue to observe gravitational waves, like actually seeing ripples in space-time, which still blows my mind. I mean, as an astrophysicist, what are you most excited about in, in the next few years? Are, are you optimistic <laughs> in, in, for the future? Let me stick with the space theme and say that, <clears throat> yeah, Elon is making money not because uh, – it with his, uh, with, his, um, uh, with, with his astronauts – He's, he's making money. Well, let's back up. There's the tourism industry. Mm-hmm. I think it's great. Long overdue. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, right, people. I would save up several vacations worth of money mm-hmm. to go into space if they can get the price down even further. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a highly elastic, uh, joy elastic, uh, economically elastic. So if they drop the price by a factor of two, the number, the demand will probably go up by a factor of two. It's an unlimited demand chain all the way down to inexpensive seats. Or you can have a lottery. Mm-hmm. I pay a dollar for a lottery for to to get to sit in a five million dollar seat mm-hmm. <laughs> me too right <laughs> me too <laughs> right right i mean right, you can easily raise that and then then you have this vicarious interest in who goes and and so so i see that as the we're witnessing the birth of an entire industry mm-hmm. and that's great just don't think of it as advancing a space frontier mm-hmm. it's not okay uh william shatner went into a suborbital trajectory mm-hmm. and everyone is cheering it. That's exactly what Alan Shepard did in 1961. Mm-hmm. So, so I'm just tempering. I don't want to stop you from being enthusiastic about it, but don't think it's something that it's not. Mm-hmm. That's delusional. And what as a- an academic and as a scientist, it's important for me for when you think about the world and when you take actions and when you vote mm-hmm. that you have, that you are, you have an understanding of reality. Mm-hmm. Uh, you hear people say, I, I want to go uh, up in the Branson uh, journey because I want to see countries um, disappear be, you know, beneath me, mm-hmm. right? Well, that happens in an airplane. Okay? <laughs> you don't see national borders in an airplane, all right? So, and someone else said, I want to see the pale blue dot that Carl Sagan talked about. The pale blue dot was when you looked at Earth from Neptune. Yeah. Okay. You're not, not coming back. You at it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, so I'm just trying to, uh, I, I'd rather people were anchored in reality mm-hmm. and then celebrate the achievement. Uh, yeah. Rather I, than believe the achievement is something different than what it actually is. I, I, I'm glad you brought that perspective up because I mean, that has been the argument for a lot of these space tourism companies is, is, for regular people to have this that, that so-called overview effect that astronauts have, right? But you're saying that we can we can have a perspective on this planet and, and the future of our species, and we don't have to see <laughs> see the the oh, no, Earth from so, Neptune, right? <laughs> there's a very big difference between suborbital flight and orbital flight. Mm-hmm. So let, we can contrast this. So the Branson Bezos journeys. They go up above the Carmen line where you get to see the stars. The blue sky disappears above you and the stars come out. That's a nice little transition to make. By the way, that can happen if you wait until sunset. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> sky darkens and the stars come out. But okay. It's far cheaper. Fine. It's far cheaper too. <laughs> and the the plane can, uh, in the, the, in the orbit, they go to their peak altitude and then they just drop mm-hmm. in free fall. And while you're in free fall, you are weightless. So weightless is, is fun. There's no substitute for being weightless. Consider what Elon did a month later. He sends a crew actually into orbit, a completely civilian crew. Mm-hmm. And they're in orbit for three days, if I remember correctly. Yep, yep. And when you're in orbit, you're in free fall, so you are weightless your entire time. That is closer to the overview effect than you would get by simply going up and, and dropping straight back. Mm-hmm. For twenty in a twenty-minute joyride, mm-hmm. the orbit, the entire Earth turns beneath you. You see eighteen sunrises and sunsets in a twenty-four-hour period. There's an entire other psychological experience going on. Mm-hmm. So, 
to the extent that tourism continues into orbital flight, I think the first people we all chip in and send are, is every politician on earth. Mm-hmm. Give them the overview effect. Mm-hmm. That'll change them, mm-hmm. I think, for the better. Mm-hmm. Finally, Neil, um, I've been covering space for some six years now, and in just that short time, I've seen the interest in space, pardon this pun, skyrocket. But as, as, as a communicator yourself, um, doing this for far longer than me, I, I'm wondering if you're kind of seeing the same interest grow um, for, for all things space. And if so, how can the science community leverage that interest more than it already has? That's a great question. That's a really good question. You should be a journalist. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. I'll pass that along to my boss. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Um, you should have a podcast. (laughs) Um, so, uh, so yes, I agree. Interest has risen in part because of the billionaire boys race. I mean, let's, let's be frank about that. Uh, what, what effect it's having is access to space is being democratized. Mm-hmm. It's not just these hand-picked select few. Mm-hmm. And for me, the benefit of that is in the long-term future, maybe the solar system becomes our backyard. And, uh, you know, and so I don't, I don't foresee permanent living on Mars, but it's certainly a, 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 a habitat like you go to Disney World, mm-hmm. here you go to Mars and you spend, you know, a month and then you come back. That'd be fun. I would do that. I'd totally mm-hmm. sign up for that. Yeah. You do it on, on the moon and see Earth in the sky. You know, Earth is, is uh, something like 50 times brighter. Full Earth on the moon is 50 times brighter than full moon seen from Earth. And it's like four times larger. And just imagine sitting out on a patio, an enclosed patio, of course, because there's no air. <laughs> You're sitting on a patio <laughs> and looking up. And just seeing your home planet a quarter million miles away. Mm-hmm. And I joke, if you go on the moon, there'll be restaurants, of course, too. Mm-hmm. And they surely have different food, you know, because everything. Will be, but they'd have no atmosphere. You know? mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> it's a space joke for you. <laughs> well, Neil, I hope, I hope one day uh, you and I can, can share a, a burger on the moon. <laughs> At the atmosphere list <laughs> restaurant. <laughs> well, Neil deGrasse Tyson's an astrophysicist, author, host of Star Talk, and head of the Hayden Planetarium in New York City. He's speaking Wednesday at the Dr. Phillips Center for the Performing Arts here in Orlando. Neil, thank you so much for your time and conversation. Excellent. Thanks for having me. Well, that's going to do it for this week's show. If you missed any part of our conversation, listen back online or be sure to subscribe to the show's podcast feed. You can do that on NPR One, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can visit WMFE.org slash Are We There Yet? We're about to celebrate 300 episodes of this show by revisiting some of my favorite conversations. Tune in through the end of this year to listen back to those segments and let me know your favorites. Shoot me an email, Are We There Yet? at WMFE.org. You can also stay up to date on the latest space news by following me on Twitter. I'm at Space Brendan, or visit our website, wmfe.org slash space. Are We There Yet? This is a production of WMFE, America's Space Station. Editorial guidance this week from LaToya Dennis. The show's intern is Maria Bersino. Support for Are We There Yet? comes from our listeners. Make a contribution online at wmfe.org slash donate. Until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening. <laughs>